Hello and welcome to another podcast of Father and Joe. I'm Joe Rocky here with Father Boniface Hicks. And Father, we're recording this in between the second and third weeks of Lent. And one of the things I want to discuss here in this particular episode was the gospel of the second week of Lent, which is the Transfiguration. And I basically wanted to talk about this from a couple of different perspectives as I've been thinking about it throughout the week. And just a quick outline of probably you're going to be able to do it way better since you just wrote a homily on it. But um, that's when Jesus goes up to the mountain with a few amount of his disciples. He is revealed by God that he himself is God. And Moses and Elijah are there next to him. Uh, St. Peter says, let's build a tent for everyone. So there's one for each. And as they're coming down the, the mountain to return to the group, Jesus says, don't tell anyone about this. Keep this a secret until after the resurrection, which even baffles them even more. So I just kind of wanted to, to look at this essentially through the St. Peter's perspective, because I know as an employer and to a certain extent, that's, that's what Jesus was to his disciples. If you want to keep something secret, you have to actively not talk about it. If you start talking about it, your employees are going to think it's okay to start talking about it. And then it becomes the conversation every single, every single meeting. And it's something that you didn't want to have to talk about. So with that being said, I'm assuming human nature now is the same as it was 2000 years ago. And Jesus didn't bring this up again during his lifetime, which brings me to, I guess the question that, that the first question I was getting to with St. Peter is if he didn't talk to Jesus about it, how does he instantly know that it's Moses and Elijah remembering that this is back whenever the commandment don't make brazen images of me still existed. You know, we live in an era now where there's more paintings of Jesus than any other figure on the planet. And back then in Judaism, that wasn't the case. So I guess that's my first question of is how did, Peter know who he was actually looking at in this awe-inspiring situation? Well, I don't think that the prohibition the Israelites had was making against making any images, just images of God. So Moses and Elijah are not God. Uh, now, I don't know that, that uh, they had images particularly of Moses and Elijah. I think your question is still, a, still an appropriate question. Um, it was certainly a supernatural experience, and there's such a thing as infused knowledge. I mean, they recognized for some reason in some way that that was Moses and Elijah. They just knew it, <laughs> as uh, sometimes we do. And that's, uh, that, that grace can be given by God. I mean, certainly the whole thing is in the context of a supernatural experience. And so the idea that there was some infused knowledge happening there would make sense. Um, there... Yeah, I don't know what kind of images uh, for Moses and Elijah there might have existed at that time. Uh, we certainly have a, a kind of style or a tradition of, uh, of iconography or of imagery for Moses um, because he had horns of light. Often he's pictured that way with light emanating from his, from his head in interesting ways. That's, uh, that comes from uh, one of the ways we translate some of those passages. 
And I don't know, uh, I don't even know myself what, how I would depict Elijah necessarily. So, um, you know, it's certainly a good question, but I, I think we would have to relegate that to some form of infused knowledge. They knew it was Moses and Elijah. And, uh, and maybe in the content, they, they overheard him, uh, Jesus, talking with them. And so possibly picking it up in some way from the, whatever they overheard in bits and pieces to get the idea that Jesus was speaking with the, the law and the prophets in, uh, in Moses and Elijah. Okay, well, then that answers that first question. And, you know, I think of other spots in, in the gospel, like after Pentecost, where they can all talk in everyone's tongue. You know, that, that's certainly not, not unexpected. Um, so that makes sense. So I, I guess the second question I have is, is more about the, the discipline within to be able to, to know this great of a secret and not to, to show it. Cause I might have my timelines wrong, but it, from my understanding back in Catholic school growing up is the transfiguration happened very early in Jesus's ministry. Um, and, and that was how I, called it so i have this thought process of saint peter seeing seeing that that christ is the messiah and then as they're going around in these groups him knowing this secret and having to keep it in you know as he's curing the lepers as he's you know curing the blind people and the crowds are astonished like who is this guy that can do this who's this guy that can cast demons out and he's sitting there in the back of his mind like, oh, I know, but I'm not allowed to tell you. And I, I just think of, of how how few people have that capability of holding that type of knowledge in and to uh, to essentially sit on it like that. So I, I wanted to, to kind of talk about, about that element because I think that's something that while we don't have the secret of knowing who the Messiah is, we all have dealt with that type of thing at least once or twice in our lives. Yeah, and in terms of it wasn't it wasn't so early in uh, Jesus's ministry. I think Matthew seventeen is the uh, transfiguration, so it's after all of the initial travels through Galilee and the initial healings and uh, exorcisms that Jesus does. It's uh, before they enter into Jerusalem and engage in some of the the dialogue, parables, uh, encounters, attacks, whatever kinds of things uh, happen there. But uh, it was, you know, a bit advanced. It, it happens, it takes place soon after uh, Jesus asks the apostles and, and uh, Peter responds, you know, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you are Peter. Uh, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. And you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell hell will not prevail against it. So it's right after that account where Jesus also had just predicted his passion for the first time. He says the son of man must um, be arrested and suffer and um, be crucified. And uh, on the third day, he will rise. And the, the apostles just have no idea what to do with all that stuff. I mean, it's just not, they're not categories that are, that are normal for any of them. And then he takes them up on the Mount of Transfiguration, just Peter, James, and John. 
And uh, some of the commentary, and, and we celebrate that in the liturgy, the preface for the transfiguration notes that he did that to strengthen their hearts against the scandal of the cross, that he ultimately revealed uh, some of that glory to them so that when they faced his arrest and crucifixion, that they wouldn't totally lose heart and despair. And uh, then he called Peter also, he said, Satan desires to sift all of you like wheat, but when you return, also strengthen your brothers. And that word to Peter that would come a little bit later, of course, was, was very important. And we still consider that to be part of the role of the successor of Peter, the Pope, to be the one to strengthen the brothers in faith. So uh, all, all of that is part of the, the purpose of the transfiguration that their faith would be strengthened and that they would be um, protected against what would come. But also that the call to keep it secret was in part because they wouldn't really understand what it meant and what it was about until everything had unfolded, until they understood what the necessity of the cross was and the, the importance of the resurrection, that the transfiguration wouldn't really make sense to, to them. And if they tried to tell it to other people, they would get it all wrong, uh, as if it were just Jesus being this kind of all-powerful giant who was uh, coming through, this big being who was going to beat up all the enemies and uh, walk out the other side. But of course, the paradox of the cross is defining of Christianity, and Jesus's true identity is revealed in him uh, going to the end uh, in a self-sacrificing posture of love, and uh, that's you know, uh, really what we need in order to, that's the key that unlocks all of the other doors of, of understanding and meaning. So, um, uh, yeah, how hard would it be to keep that kind of secret? I'm sure that they wanted to talk about it. Probably they talked about it with each other, at least. At least he brought three of them up there so that they could discuss it with each other. Um, who knows what got leaked out among the disciples. Basically, everybody else that Jesus told to be quiet wasn't quiet. So, Probably that's true with the, uh, his own 12 as well, but um, we don't have any examples of them telling other people. But certainly they remembered it. It made a profound impression how much they discussed it amongst themselves or tried to understand what was happening. Uh, even this strange voice from heaven saying, this is my son, my beloved, listen to him. Um, of course, it's telling them to listen to him. So if they're going to say that this is God and they should listen to him, then maybe they really actually kept the secret. That would be useful. But those are, uh, anyway, all, all very good questions for engaging the Gospels in a realistic way. And, and I love that you're doing that, Joe, and certainly encourage our, our listeners to do that too. Ask realistic quest questions. Put yourself in these circumstances. These aren't strange mythological stories that behave according to different rules than our normal life. These are stories about human beings who are like you and me and would have similar struggles uh, to what you and I would have. And so I, uh, I think it's great that you're, you're asking these kinds of questions, engaging the stories in these ways. Yeah. So sorry, I had the timeline wrong. Um, again, remembering stuff from seventh grade isn't always the greatest thing. Um, so that gives me two follow-up thoughts. And one thing I try to do, which I think is a skill that is important, is we know the end of the story. I mean, we, we, we go through the passion every year, and, and, and we know how it ends. Um, but at that point in time, they didn't. They, they, they couldn't even 
grasp the core concept of it. And the I guess the the, the example that I guess I, I'm trying to articulate here is that how you can have multiple people seeing the same event and as you just articulated that event essentially is a preparation so that they don't get scattered into weeds at the point of the crucifixion and how each of them uniquely take that event and operate differently with the events of the passion with how um, Peter basically runs away and denies Jesus and John stays with him throughout it next to it next to Mary and how in our lives how we can see something being a a great moment or, or a great event that would give us strength for later and how we can get so upset that how did this other person not interpret this the way that I did how did they not get the strength from this that they should have we're kind of seeing the ultimate example that you could have of that and John doing essentially exactly what he should. He's staying with Mary throughout the process. And Peter, who becomes the head of the faith, is the one who does it arguably the worst. And I just kind of wanted to put the, the beginning and the end of, of that part from, from Peter's perspective in his relationship with the rest of the disciples and kind of see how that works and see if I'm putting things together that are wrong. His, his relationship with the rest of the disciples. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately he becomes their leader, um, Mm -hmm. you know, after, after the resurrection. So I guess that's what I mean by the relationship. I get, I guess the modern word would be boss, but the, the one who's, who's in charge of them. Yeah. 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 It's a, it's a little unclear how some of that stuff uh, unfolded, there would certainly be a, a profound respect for St. Peter, and uh, that that became clear in the in the Acts of the Apostles as you continue through the story that they they look to him. Um, he's he's listed first in a number of accounts. The evangelists were very aware of him being the the first of the apostles. He uh, is the one who speaks and acts and takes initiative. They they turn to him. They defer to him. Um, and, and I think basically recognize the authority that Jesus had placed in him. And uh, they, they treat him as the head of the apostles, even though they were certainly no pushovers and they made their own initiatives in terms of evangelization. Some of them promoting some of their own ideas about how the gospel should be lived out following the Jewish laws. And it's ultimately Peter who calls the Council of Jerusalem, Peter who makes the final decision, Peter who writes the decree, Peter who... Uh, wields that authority in the in the context of the church, and so um, it's uh, yeah interesting to see how that all plays out. He certainly singled out on several occasions within the Gospels, uh, usually with James and John, although in some cases entirely by himself. And so we can we can pick up on some of those distinctions as well. And uh, how the other apostles uh, dealt with that, I'm sure, was varied. They were. Uh, sinners with human weakness uh, like you and me. And so I'm sure uh, we're jostled a bit back and forth. We know James and John were vying for the position at the right and left of Jesus in his kingdom. And so there certainly were some uh, some egos and some different ideas at work there. And But ultimately they, they worked that out and, and they would spread out quite a bit after the resurrection. 
and begin to carry the gospel into different places after doing some kind of coordination on some key doctrinal issues and uh, making some initial proclamation and supporting each other in close quarters. Then the, you know, the stories of the apostles really spread to the ends of the earth pretty quickly in proclaiming the gospel to, to all nations. Yeah, I, I, I guess the part that, and obviously that'll happen. And I guess the part that's, that's I'm having the issue with, I guess, is now from, from the rest of their perspectives. Because if you look at, if you look at some of the examples that you just brought out there about Peter being directly identified or called out. So he, he denies Christ at the passion. He's the one who, um, when Jesus is in the water is panicking. Um, you know, there's a lot of times he's brought up in, in doing not the ideal situation. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it, there's a lot of examples of, this is the guy you picked, you know, like John stayed and did everything that you asked him to do. And, but you went with this one, the one who's pretty much always the loud one and, and just all over the place. It seems like, I know, Grant, obviously the gospel focus on Jesus and, and, and John and, and Peter are the secondary ones, but that's, that's a question that, that the way that the gospels have it, have me, ask every once in a while. So, yeah. Well, and I think uh, you see in John, this real development, I mean, it's almost hard to coordinate the John who is known as a son of thunder and who is asking if they should call down lightning on those who are casting out demons, not in the name of Jesus. Um, It's hard to coordinate him with the John that appears in the letters of John and even in the gospel of John at different points because it uh, seems like a different person. But, but we really get the sense, and the Christian tradition has held this out, that, that he was transformed by his time with Jesus, that, that John's great holiness and openness, while not leading him to the office of Pope, uh, led him to a place of, of sanctity. And so what he gets by really developing a heart like Jesus's heart is not something that clamors after power uh, in a meritocracy to wield it over others, but something that uh, moves into a place of humility and trust that God's designs are the best designs, and maybe even delights in the fact that the the office of Peter is really a doctrine of mercy, that that God would choose the the least likely, that he would choose the lowest to be the best, that he would choose the one who is last of all to be first. Uh, is demonstrating Jesus's own principles as he expressed them. And so those who get those principles would, and, and interiorize them better, would be able to appreciate those kinds of decisions of the Lord even better. And so I think that's what you'd have with someone like John. With the others, it's not quite as clear, and there may have been a little bit of tension with James. It's not clear which James we're talking about in the Acts of the Apostles, um, because the, the James the Elder, who would be the brother of John, was martyred early on. So it's probably James the Less who doesn't play as active a role in the gospel. But anyway, the, a little bit of that is uh, not, not totally clear. But, but certainly there were apostles that kind of pushed back, and St. Paul wasn't afraid to resist Peter to his face and call him out and raise some of the issues. And so um, Peter got some of that pushback. But what, one of the things that we really see is after Pentecost— something really changes in Peter. Uh, there's, a, there's a power that's invested in him and an authority that's invested in him that becomes unquestionable. 
And so that doesn't really happen until Pentecost. And some of these questions wouldn't be dealt with fully until that transformation had taken place. And so I think that's also an answer, you know, a kind of way of resolving the dilemma that you put forward in your question is, uh, I think Peter really is transformed in his docility, in his reconciliation with Jesus, in his understanding of mercy, and in a way of uh, using the authority entrusted to him by by Jesus in a way that um, became a, a clear light for the rest of the of, of the church. And by no means was I trying to cause problems or anything, just to to get through just to get through some questions that were in my head. And I think of as you've outlined that there, um, that the, the time with Christ has had transformed them, and it it gives me other thoughts and examples I had that are well after the Bible w- was completed that, that some of which you had brought up about how essentially devoting your life to prayer does transform you. And a particular example that you gave that I'm recalling is the man that was sitting in front of a, of an image of Mary, I forget if it was a statue or a painting and had had just a horribly negative and, anger-filled life and had transformed all around by essentially allowing himself to become close to to christ and and therefore or mary and therefore christ and it seems that you know as i've tried to hit on in a practical sense many times throughout the history of this that there's a practical benefit of listening to the church and, and becoming engaged in prayer and being part of the sacraments and I think that you just found another way of articulating it and that as you become closer to Christ, your life just gets better. You know, as we go through some of the initial things that you just outlined that people were calling Christ to do to just stomp out the Romans, stomp out all the people who disagree with them and be a military leader like some of the uh, ones in the Old Testament like Joshua, just take out everyone who disagrees with you but how that life ultimately doesn't work. And we can see that scattered throughout all of history. That is like the backstory of human history. And really the only way to move forward and to have long lasting goodness is love. And as we've discussed multiple times, God is love. And I I just think that those thoughts are stuff that had come to me through your teachings here today. And I don't want to miss you know, miswire them or trample on them, but just to highlight kind of what you just taught me here. And I think the value therein. So I definitely want to give you a chance since you're the one putting out all the good knowledge to conclude today's episode and, and bring us into a, another week moving forward. Well, I, I just, again, love the ways that you're engaging the gospels as uh, real accounts of real history with real people. And I think that's just so critical and such a great model. The, uh, the, the temptation to treat them as these kind of ethereal things that are, you know, live according to their own rules and have these kind of cartoon-like mythological characters that don't correspond with real people and real events. That, that sense of uh, mythologizing the Gospels that is, uh, is just is so problematic and I, and I think so easy to fall into it. So I just really commend you for those questions. And hopefully my responses uh, 
you know, and others could give better responses, fuller responses, but I, you know, those are the things I could share off the top of my head, uh, reflect my own engagement of those kinds of questions and, and my, my own uh, interest and desire to know these truths as historical facts and these people as real people. St. Peter wasn't a composite image of a, a number of leader characters throughout history. He was a real guy. And uh, so we should engage him as such. And James and John likewise, and people who are really transformed by their time with Jesus, as you and I also can be. He's the same Jesus today as he was then. And so we can come to know him as they did. And what a beautiful calling as, as we conclude this episode. It's something that we all can do um, and all, all should do. So we thank everyone for listening. You know, the easiest way to do it is to go to Mass and, you know, go from there. So we thank everyone for listening, and we will be with you again next week.